Heavenly Father, we come before you now in all humility as we stand under your word. We ask you that you will soften our hearts, that you will engage our minds through Psalm 42 and 43 and through the preaching of your word. Some of us here, Lord, may have heavy hearts, and so we pray now that you will lighten our load. And during this time, speak to us, O God. Lord, we give you glory, we give you praise in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, you know, most of us, um, in some ways, dislike going to the doctor. My father-in-law is a doctor in Tasmania, and so I want to be careful how I say this. Um, there are times where going to the doctor somewhat scares us, some, somewhat frightens us, and, um, but we, we have to go usually when there's something wrong uh, physically, uh, and it may be severe. So uh, what usually happens is we go see the doctor in, in order for, for him or her to examine us. Uh, and when we get to the doctor, he, he asks us a, a ton of questions. Uh, he checks on a couple things. He checks on our symptoms, right? And he'll maybe give us a, a diagnosis uh, and then followed by a treatment of some kind if needed. And uh, really, we have no choice but to, to accept the doctor's orders, so to speak. Uh, a couple uh, years ago, I dislocated my knee. And, uh, you know, my, my, my father-in-law was over, and, and so, you know, I let, I let him know, here's, here's what's going on, and, uh, you know, my, my father-in-law, he's a good doctor, and he's like, well, this is what's going on, you know, you got a partial dislocation, and uh, this is what you need to do, and, and, and he said, just, just uh, keep off your feet for a couple weeks, and uh, you should be fine, it should heal correctly, uh, the cartilage around your kneecap, it should heal okay, um, but just to make sure, you know, uh, you don't do anything strenuous, uh, but you just you just get some rest, and so you know it's comforting. And uh, you know, as I was thinking really uh, through this psalm and through the psalms this summer, um, it's really we go to the psalms for di- for a diagnosis, so to speak. You know, I said it before, but the psalms are a reflection of what we go through in life. We usually read it, right? We read the psalms. But in the end, it, it really reads us. It reads into our souls. And so our prayer, the elders and, and I, as we pray, as we go through the Psalms, we pray that the Psalms does work in your heart. John Calvin says this, the Psalms are a complete anatomy of every part of the human soul. And so as, as we continue our series, know that the Psalms touch, touches upon almost every part of what we think, of what we feel, and how we act. And this morning is no different as we go through Psalm 42 and 43. And really what we find in Psalm 42 and 43 is a diagnosis of a a depressed soul. And so today we may uncover some things that are going on in our own hearts, or we may see them in a new light. And so I, I want to be sensitive, as some of us here are, are, are having or experiencing maybe some sort of depression right now. It could be a beautiful day, but there could be a gray cloud hanging over our heads at this moment. And so let me just give you a really general definition of spiritual depression before we begin. It's neither an entirely medical or mental 
problem, but it's also a human problem. Medical and emotional problems can contribute to depression, but there are, spirit, there are significant spiritual components that contribute to this human problem as well. So just be aware of that. It's not entirely medical. It's not mental. But also there's a spiritual aspect that contributes to our human problem, which we call spiritual depression. And so what we find is that there are two underlying causes that make us experience or feel depression. There are two underlying causes. The first one is suffering. Whether it's suffering internally in our hearts, in our minds, or suffering externally, or something when something is going around around us, something's going on around us. Okay, so suffering is number one, but also um, the the other underlying factor is sin. Sin contributes to our heart problems. It could be one or the other, but usually it, it's both kind of going together. Okay, so suffering and sin. Therefore, in looking in at this psalm, I want us to diagnose the psalmist's heart. But again, as I mentioned, our own hearts, our own sin, our own suffering this morning. Because that's what we're going to see right now. And in the Christian life, let me be honest with you, in the Christian life, we're all going to experience suffering and sin. And in our suffering and sin, it will lead us to what we call is spiritual depression. We're going to experience feelings of sorrow We're going to experience feelings of shame, of loneliness, maybe suicide, maybe anger. And at times, at times, it will feel as if we're falling down into the deepest and darkest pits of the earth. You know, after studying this psalm the past couple weeks, I had to analyze myself and really be honest and figure out if I've ever experienced a type of spiritual depression. And I want you to be surprised at that statement. Because some of the greatest men, preachers, and scholars that we've looked up to over the years, over the centuries, have experienced bouts of depression. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers himself, when he was in his early 20s, there was a fire in his church. And from his pulpit, which was up high, he he saw people running and trampling over each other. He saw people being killed. And from that day forward, that affected him, his heart. And he went through bouts of depression all his life, his entire life. Jonathan Edwards, America's greatest thinker, theologian, and I would say the greatest pastor I've ever come to grips with, he's experienced depression. And also Martin Luther, right? One of the the founding fathers of the Reformation, he experienced depression um, during his, his older age in life. And so don't think you're immune to depression. But I, I really want us to take heart, church, because our text today, people in the Bible have experienced depression as well. And it points to a person person battling his depressed soul. So just like we've been doing, just a brief background on this psalm. We can't really identify who the psalmist or psalmists were here who wrote this song, who penned this psalm, but we know that, that, that this was probably a prominent musician 
Because in verse 4, which I'm going to get to, it indicates that he would lead the people of God in worship. Some would also say that this was David himself that penned this psalm because of his long exile from Jerusalem as he was running from Saul. Right? David was, was someone who, who longed to commune with God. And we've seen that throughout psalm after psalm. Others aren't, aren't able to identify the author. But whoever it may be, we know that this is a deeply troubled yet personal experience the psalm was going through. In fact, Psalm 42 and 43 are closely knit together. I, I thought it was best that we go through both of them this morning. And that's why we read it. Therefore, I'm going to take us, I'm going to do my best to sort of take us through both of these psalms today. Also, just one little note is that it might not, it might not surprise you that in counseling, in counseling the depressed, people reference this psalm more than any other, other psalm in Scripture or chapter in Scripture. They go to this psalm to deal with depression or to counsel people in dealing with depression. So let, let me encourage you by giving you the aim for our text, and it's very simple. My aim or the proposition is there is hope for the depressed soul. There is hope for the depressed soul. And just an overall view of where we're going, and I'll, I'll say this again, but we're going to go through the condition of the soul, the context of the soul, and then we're, go we're going to end with the cure for the soul. The condition, the context, and then the cure for the soul. Again, let's look into his heart, the psalmist's heart this morning, but ultimately see God through all of this. And that takes us to our first point, which I describe again, is the condition of the soul, the condition of the soul. First thing I noticed when reading through this psalm is that this psalmist has done nothing wrong. It doesn't say it here, right? There's, there's no apparent sin that we know of. There's no evil done. No calling out for forgiveness, just like David did last week in Psalm 51. But what we find in the first part of our text this morning are two conditions we've probably already experienced in the Christian life. And if you haven't, you will. And a lot of us could relate to this condition. What we find first here is a spiritual drought. We find a spiritual drought. And from the very beginning of this psalm, he wastes no time. He's saying, this is what the psalmist is saying. He's saying, you know how I feel right now, God? You know how I feel? Look at verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? When the psalmist describes himself as a deer panting for water, he's saying to himself that he's in a state of exhaustion. Now remember, this, this psalmist is not struggling with sin, but he's struggling with himself and he's battling spiritual dryness. He's longing for God, but it feels as if God is not there. He's like a panting deer, as it says here, exhausted. And when the deer comes to the riverbank, it seems like he, there's no water there because there's a drought. Here's what I mean. If, if a deer is thirsty... They're, they're not dumb animals. They'll drink, right? Just, just like any other creature. If a deer is thirsty, they'll drink. But if a deer is panting, they've exhausted themselves looking for water and are yearning for something that has yet to be found. 
The psalmist is in a spiritual job because God is not a reality to him right now. He's not satisfied. When you long for something that's already there, it means you're not satisfied. That's what the psalmist is going through. Let me, let me give you another example. Imagine uh, just an, an engagement between a Christian man and a Christian woman, um, soon to be married, okay? They're, they're deeply in love. Uh, the wedding is, is six months away, uh, so therefore they're, they're living separately. Um, but during that time, that they're talking on the phone. Uh, maybe there's a picture on their bedside table, uh, right? Madly in love, okay? Um, for each other, the basic things are, are somewhat met, okay? Uh, they're hearing each other's voices on the phone. Maybe they're FaceTiming. Uh, again, they're, they're looking at pictures on their phone. But here's the thing. They still long to be closer. They still long to see each other's face. They, 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 they still long to feel each other's touch. But that's not happening because the marriage hasn't come yet. In fact, this is what the psalmist is going through. He is saying, Man, God, I know you are there. I know you are there. Yet I feel as if God is not here. Have you felt like that before, church? What happens when we feel like this? If we're longing for God, usually what happens is we, we have a Christian to-do list, right? We read his word, we pray, we maybe read good books, we memorize scripture. We do all the things by the Christian um, to-do list. But again, we could do all these things and, and, and not see God in one sense. We could do all these things and God could seem so far so distant. We could do all these things, yet we could desire more. And look what, it, look what he says in the end of verse 2. He says, when shall I come and appear before God? He's going through spiritual drought, but he looks at his surroundings, and he wants out. He wants out. Not only is he feeling spiritually, spiritually dry, but he feels spiritually alone. It's what I call spiritual isolation. Spiritual isolation. Verse three, my tears have been my food day and night. Look, sense the image we have in verse three. He's weeping. He's not eating. He's lost his appetite for food. His tears are, are streaming down his face and, and that's become his food. That's the soul of a depressed man. He's alone physically, but also spiritually in one sense, because everyone around him is mocking him, right? It says in the text, they're questioning him, where is your God? He's the only child of God in this situation. Therefore, he's spiritually isolated. He's spiritually alone. Yet what does he do? Look at verse 4. These things I remember as I'm crying, as I pour out my soul, how would I go with the throng, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. What's happening here? What is this psalmist talking about? Like I mentioned before, it may seem there's a high possibility that this psalmist was a worship leader. 
he worshiped in the house of, of the Lord. Right? And it looked a little differently that day. It's not, it's not like this church hurting or what we were accustomed to. What, would they, what, what they would do back in the days, you know, before they would come into church, they would actually uh, sing and have these instruments as they walked into the worship service. As they walked into the temple, they, they would be playing and they'd be singing and the worship leader is leading them. And that's what was happening. That's what he was recalling. And so if you can imagine coming into church with, with shouts of praise and instruments playing. You know, C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Reflection of, of the Psalms, he gives the context of the Jews and poets during these days. Let me read for you what he says. He says this, The Jews were not, like the Greeks, an analytical and logical people. The ancient Jew experienced not only a spiritual form of God, but the reflection of God through the worship of his people. End quote. Therefore, when the psalmist talks about appearing before God in verse 2 or remembering the time of worship, he most often meant seeing God in the place of worship. Seeing God in the place of worship. Psalm 68, verse 24 to 26 says this, your, your procession is seen, O God, the procession of my people, my king, into the sanctuary. The singers in front, the musicians last, between them virgins playing tambourines, and they're saying this, bless God in the great congregation, O Lord, O you who are of Israel's fountain. That was their worship, because there is a spiritual sense of seeing God. And so Lewis Lewis's insight, C.S. Lewis's insight that the ancient Jews joined the tangible elements like worship and the intangible, which was the spiritual side of knowing and seeing God. And, and the psalmist is having these memories of better days, where he lead the worship of God into where he lead the worship team into the house of God to be with the people of God. That's what he's recalling. You know, there's something about our time of worship that brings people together, right? I've said this before, that the church really is, is a unique place. There's something about being physically present in the church as we worship God. And so just think about this, just in our church context, okay, we come together, uh, we have an elder or, or a pastor open the word of God, right, before us. We begin the service as we open the word of God or we open a Puritan prayer and, and we pray. We pray for our souls to be prepared before worship. Okay, think about this through our service. And then, and then the music leader, he leads us in singing and praising God. And then here we are, we're, we're sort of standing side by side and we're just singing aloud. And then, and then the elder, he leads us in pastoral prayer, right? There's adoration, there's confession, he presents the request before the congregation, and then we offer our stewardship as a form of worship to God. And then thereafter comes the most important part of the service together. It's not the donuts, but it's when the preacher opens the word. And, and so we, we gaze upon the pulpit, not, not the preacher, we gaze upon the pulpit and we listen. We listen. We listen to God as the word is expounded to us. That is, that is seeing and sensing God. 
That is the intangible elements that C.S. Lewis was talking about. All of this carries over through the life of the body. And so church, remember and cherish these times to be worshiped together. There is no place on earth that is so pure as a church worship service where we are worshiping and singing to God and we are praising God through the beauty of his word. After we read the psalmist and his feelings of drought and isolation, we find the first of three refrains, which I'm going to get to in a little bit. I'll get to that towards the end, but I want to read it once again. And there's a reason why it's there more than once. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise in my salvation and my God. Again, I'll get back to this. But moving on to our second point this morning is what I call the, the context of the soul. The context of the soul. Not only do we see his inward struggle, but we see his outward circumstances as well. So we see the inward struggle, but we see the outward circumstances that are going on. And what we find is really is a continuation of his present situation as he remembers the past once again. It's what I like to call spiritual distress. Spiritual distress. Verse 6, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Mizar. Deep calls deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. So, so here, here's the overall picture, okay? He, he's away from Jerusalem, it may seem. He's, he's, somewhere in the north of, he's somewhere north of Jerusalem. Something or someone drove him away. We don't know. But what we do know is that maybe he's sitting there and he, he just kind of looks. And what is a beautiful sight to many, like oceans and waves, for him it's somber. It's a reminder of his life, right? It's a reminder that he, he's lost his footing, that waves and breakers have swept over him. You know, when my daughter was two, we... We were going to the ocean for the first time. And so we had to teach our daughter the difference between water in a bathtub and water in the ocean, right? Because those are two totally different forces of nature. And so we would kind of prepare her. We would say, you know, Piper, the ocean water is much different. You have to look at it. You have to, care, you have to be careful. Maybe you should sit down on the sand um, because the ocean is going is to come over you. And she just gives me this dumbfounded look like, it's just water, Daddy. And so, you know, what would happen is she'll, she'll stand with her back against the ocean. And she'll stand on the sand, and, of course, the waves come, and what happens? It just goes over her, tramples her, right? And she's, she's being knocked around. That's what's happening. The psalmist is being knocked around. The circumstances of life are knocking him around right now. It's loud, it's powerful, and it's coming at me over and over again. And the psalmist is writing this down. The psalmist is longing for pure water, but the waters of life are hitting him hard. He's saying, I'm, I'm trying to stand here, but it's hard. And so he recalls something else. Look at verse 8. He recalls on something else. By day, the Lord commands his 
Here it is again, steadfast love. And at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. And so I say here it is again because steadfast love is really the theme of, of last year, of what we've been going through so many times. And what we'll see this, this steadfast love, the, the word is has said. We've seen it in 2 Samuel. We've seen it in Nehemiah. And so for the most part, I think we could all agree that it reminds us of God's covenant love. Really, his loving kindness toward his people. But this week, you know, I, I did a little bit more digging. And so I came across a commentary that said, you know, the best way to describe said love is, is, uh, is loyal love. Is his loyal love. He uses the word loyal. In other words, God is loyal in spite of his rebellious people. God is loyal in spite of his rebellious people. You know, as I was kind of rummaging through the office, I, I sort of went down this rabbit trail. I, I found this book in, in one of my shelves, and it's called Love Beyond Degree. And it's an exposition on the book of Hosea. Um, and some of us may know Hosea's story. Uh, Hosea was a, was a man called by God to marry an unfaithful woman. And really, God uses Hosea, the prophet Hosea, to display his discipline and love toward Israel. Okay, and so um, if you ever go through the book of Hosea, it's such a great book. It, it, you know, you really just think about God's mercy, God's said love, but also you think about God's love and his discipline. And so l- let me read for you something here. It comes through this book, and it talks about um, the loyal love of God, but also his discipline as well. Reading, it says, being shocked or offended by the severity with which God chastises his people belies a dreadfully inadequate understanding of God's love. The willingness of God to severely chastise the people doesn't meet with the expectations of easygoing, indulgent affection created by a feeble definition of love. Only a weak, overly tolerant love would allow a rebellious nation to flourish in their sin. God's committed love could not prosper his people with wine and wheat and livestock and progeny while they remain unrepentant. Rather, driven by genuine love, the Lord would go to any length to separate his people from their idols and bring them home to himself. That's ultimate love. Bringing his people home to himself. That is has said love. That is his steadfast love. That is loyal love. God always keeps his covenant love towards his people. And if you read the story of the Bible in general, that's what it's, that's what it's about. From Genesis 3, right, we have rebellion when Adam and Eve sinned. And so we read over and over again how God saves them, how God redeems them, and then they rebel. Israel rebels. And so we, we, as we think through this, God's has said love, we, we, we go to his word, right? We know that he's kept his promise, and, it's, and his has said love is always there. It's always a good reminder to go to his word and think through his has said love. But also, also, I want us to look back at our own lives as well and see how God has showed us his steadfast love time and time again. And if you don't believe me, that God is loyal to you, if you don't believe that God is loyal to you, think about this. You're here at church today. 
you're sitting in these seats. And here's what I mean. You may not remember God, but God remembers you. You may not remember God, but God remembers you. In our darkest moments, God is there. You are here because God sovereignly puts you here in these seats this morning. And so we are to worship and pray to God just like the psalmist did here at night because he will always remember us, dear friends. Before we go to bed, we say a prayer to God. We say thank you for your steadfast love. When we wake up, we say, great is your faithfulness. Your mercies are new every morning. That is his steadfast love. Next, in verses 9 and 10, we find a spiritual oppression. A spiritual oppression. Verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Right? That's oppression. And that oppression is, what drive, is, that, is what's driving him to sorrow, to spiritual depression. You know, some of us remember, some of us may remember Job's story in the Bible, right? We, we know Job's innocence, uh, where, where God took everything from, away from the innocent Job. And then a, as we read through the book of Job, you know, Rod and I studied this during Sermon and Trust uh, a couple years ago. But what happens after Job chapter 4 until about 31, Job chapter 31, is that there's this conversation he has with, the, with his three friends. And, and Job is just questioned. Job is accused of, of being sinful, right? But in the end, Job was always innocent. But here's the thing. Here's where I'm getting at. Job, Job questioned God. From in, 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 Job, in Job 23... Job, Job questioned God, but, but not in unbelief, okay? It, it was hard for Job to grasp God's sovereignty at times, but he knew God was always there. God was working in him. Let me read to you Job 23, verses 8 to 10. Behold, I go forward. This is Job speaking. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, and when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. And so what we find here, going back to our psalm, what we find here in the psalmist's question, the psalmist's question is more rhetorical in nature. It's like asking, you know, are you there, Lord? Why is this happening to me? Right? Right? And the psalmist is working through this. He's saying, look, I know the answer, but I just need to ask because that's what I'm feeling right now. That's what the psalmist is going through. I know you're there, but I need to ask. Spurgeon says this, faith is allowed to inquire of her God the causes of his displeasure. In other words, it's okay to go to God and ask him what's going on. Church, we should be going to God. But listen, we should be going to God in faith. Going to, back to my illustration about teaching my daughter about those waves. You know, 
when, when she doesn't see the waves, we, we've kind of prepared ourselves now. We, we kind of stand beside her or, or below her. And so, you know, the, the waves come, and, and basically we'll, we'll stand there, and we, as she falls, we'll kind of lift her up and pick her up. All right, there, there are times we'll, we'll miss it, but for the most part, we're, we're there, we're ready, right? We're standing right next to her. And so the psalmist acknowledges the same thing. He's saying, God, you are my rock. When you fall, when I fall, God is always going to be there. He's going to be our rock. It may seem like he's not there, but God is there. And so when we get knocked down by the waves of life, just a reminder, God is right there. Now I have a couple questions for us in regards to to going to God in faith. Church, are are you looking for better circumstances or are you looking at God? Are you looking for better circumstances or are you looking at God? Are you trusting in Him to work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure? Philippians 2. Are you able to accept His will which is good, acceptable, and perfect, Romans 12. The psalmist may have felt as if God had forgotten him. But again, he knew God was there. You know who else sort of went through the same thing? Jesus. On the cross, Jesus called out to God, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knew God was there. And so what we see is, is really a fulfillment of another psalm, Psalm 22. This is David. Psalm 22, verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Spiritual depression at times feels like God is not there. But I want you to understand that we have a Savior, Jesus Christ, who knows what we're going through. Because he's experienced all the adversaries all the day long. He's experienced oppression from his enemies. He was beaten, he was mocked, he was killed. He was raised to life so that we would never experience eternal depression. Jesus Christ died for us and rose again so that we would never experience eternal depression. But it does not end here, for there is a way out. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Our last point takes us to what I call the cure for the soul. The cure for the soul. Three refrains between the psalmist's drought, his isolation, his distress and oppression. And between all these spiritual battles of depression, you realize something. It's really God using him to cure himself. God is using this psalmist to cure himself. And what we find here is is really the battle for joy. And so in battling through our depression, battling through our sorrows, we must fight for joy. And the first thing we must do, and it's in our three refrains, is we must talk to ourselves. 
We must talk to ourselves. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? You know, I used to think he was calling out to God. But you know what he's doing here? He's talking to himself. Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? What's going on in here? And so there's a huge difference. Listen, there's a huge difference in talking to yourself and listening to yourself. Okay? There's a huge difference in talking to yourself and listening to yourself. I think naturally we listen to ourselves, especially when times get tough. Let me give you an example. Maybe it's Sunday night and you have, uh, you're getting ready for Monday morning or, or you're getting ready for the week ahead. Okay? You have your, your to-do list. You, you write it down or whatnot. You put it on your phone. right? But Monday morning, you wake up and, you, and you're in your you're in your, your, your covers, and you're just thinking about your day, and you're listening to yourself. You're saying, look at this to-do list. I, I, hear, I hear the babies crying. I know laundry needs to be done. I know dishes need to be washed. I know, I know there's, there's, there's traffic that I need, I need to go through. I know there's people hurting. I'm hurting in life, and you're, you're, you're listening to yourself as you are in your covers, and this is what you're doing. You're saying, I don't want to face this day. I just want to stay here. I don't want to face what's ahead of me. That's listening to yourself. As opposed to talking to yourself. When we talk to ourselves, we understand that we've already been vindicated by the blood of Jesus Christ. As it says here in 43.1, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause. Vindication was done at the cross on our behalf. In other words, we say this so often, we preach the gospel to ourselves. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? You're vindicated. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones, if I could recommend one resource on spiritual depression, Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a book entitled Spiritual Depression, and he does an exposition on Psalm 42. And so I want to point to one quote, and it's so, so rich. He points to the psalmist talking to himself, and he says this. It's up here, but let me read it. The main problem in the whole matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is this. We allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. Most unhappiness in life is due to the fact that we listen to ourselves instead of talking to ourselves. David, again, he, he thinks it's David, the psalmist, in effect says, self, listen for a moment to what I have to say. Why are you cast down? The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself, question yourself, and to preach to yourself. You must remind yourself who God is and what God has done and what God has promised to do. This is the essence of the treatment in a nutshell. We must understand that this self of ours, the other man within us, has got to be handled. Do not listen to him. Turn on him. Speak to him. Remind him of what you know. So rather than listening to him, allowing him to drag you down and depress you. You must take control. Friends, it's a battle, but you must talk to yourself every time you are feeling depressed. So let me ask you, are you doing that? Are you talking to yourself as opposed to listening to yourself? The psalmist asked God to vindicate him. 
he's already been vindicated. Second, as the psalmist talks to himself, he tells his self to what? It says there, it's in our text, hope in God. Hope in God. Chapter 43, verses 2 and 3. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. So how do we hope in God, church? By understanding that he is our refuge. He is our dwelling place. He is our home away from home. He is a place we find shelter when wickedness attacks us. We understand that Christ left his heavenly home in order for him to draw us to him. To the end, to our, to our heavenly home. We also understand that he is our light. Light. We recognize that when we walk in darkness, the only light that will give us hope is that of the Lord. And so church, may he ever shine so brightly in the, dar- in the darkness that we battle. Lastly, we understand that he is our truth. The faithfulness of God is the only thing that we can rely on. By virtue of his word, God will show us his divine faithfulness by revealing himself through scripture. Refuge, light, and truth. That's who we put our hope in. Hope in God, dear friends. Hope in God. And you know what will happen? Lastly, you will praise the Lord. The psalmist ends in praise. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, <coughs> and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Do, do, you, do you see where this is going? As you talk to yourself, as you preach the gospel to yourself, as you put your hope in God, and he has shown you his mercy time and time again, as it sinks into your life, and he is the only thing that matters, the only thing that it will draw, draw you to is praise. Right? You know, Rod be- began with Psalm 14, and he talked about the Psalms, right? All five books. What you see in the whole book of Psalms is lament, then all the way to praise. Right? This is what you see in Psalm 42 and 43. You see lament, and then you see go all the way to praise. Friends, that's the Christian life. The Christian life goes through times of lament, but then we'll go to eventual praise in heaven when we see God. And that is our true joy. Church, this is a picture. This psalm is a picture of a sad yet beautiful depressed soul. This is how we worked through a depressed soul. And so let me conclude here with a couple thoughts. Have you diagnosed your soul this morning? And in your ongoing diagnosis, I want you to know two things in terms of what we need. First thing we need is we need community. We need community in the context of church. You know, it's, it's easy to miss church. But it's easy to miss church even while we're at church. Does that make sense? It's easy to miss church even while we're at church. Meaning you could come to church, right? You could want the expository sermons, but never change. We want, we want the best outlines. 
But are, are we walking into church and saying, Lord, preach to my affections, preach to my heart? Rather than, than just walking away with great knowledge, we want a heart so drawn to God that we praise him alone. So we need church. We need church as we face another week ahead. We need to be surrounded by believers. Second, we need community in the context of fellowship. We need community in the context of fellowship. And so whether it's home groups or, or small groups like, like the women's Bible study or, or the men's Bible study or the other various things going on, we need fellowship. The most sweetest times at home group is when we are praying and at times weeping together over the needs of our church body. And so we need sweet fellowship. We're not going to answer everything in the context of one or two hours, but we need fellowship together. Don't forget to fellowship with other believers. Thirdly, we need community in the context of discipleship, whether it's informally or formally. We need discipleship. So whether, you know, this is a form of discipleship where I'm teaching you from the pulpit, we either need one-to-one or, or small groups as well, we need discipleship. You know, when I first got saved, I was, I was discipled by an elder from a church, and he would drive home all the way from San Francisco, and at 6 o'clock on, on Wednesday nights, he would say, come over to my house, we're going to go through this book together. And for a year and a half, we would just go over this discipleship book together. And I was just a young man at 18 years old, and I was just being discipled by an elder at a, at a local church. And so we need discipleship. You know, I was talking to, to Johnny Kim um, just the other week, and, you know, he, we, we know this. The church has been praying for them as when they moved last year at, in finding a church. And um, this was unsolicited, but I said, so, you know, what, what do you miss? And um, he said, you know, I, I, miss, I miss the Ed Desards. And I miss the, the Peter Lenways, people who have spoken in his life while he was up here. And so we need discipleship. Those of you who are sort of old in the faith, disciple us. We need you to disciple us. We need to hear from you. Young people, listen. Last thing, I'm, I'm going to end here. We need Jesus Christ. And I'm going to have you turn to Romans 8. Romans 8. We need Jesus Christ as we are battling depression. Jesus Christ is the flowing stream. He is the everlasting water. We need Christ. He is the only one who's going to satisfy our deepest longing. In counseling ourselves or counseling others, we usually don't start with go be holy, right? We don't say do this, do this, do this. But what we need to understand in counseling ourselves, first and foremost, is the doctrine of justification. We cannot move any further in becoming holy in sanctification unless we know who we are in Jesus Christ. And Romans 8 is such a great picture of that. It's another passage in dealing with depression because it reminds us of our liberation in Christ, our freedom to live in Christ. And I will read for you just bits and pieces and then I will close Verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. You are set free, friends. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You are free. 
You may feel like you're losing, but you are free. You are free to lose. This is what preaching to yourself looks like. Look at verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Let me keep going as the word will do work in our hearts. Verse 31 and following. I'm just going to close. Verse 31. This is for the depressed soul. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he, will, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37. No, in all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, for I am sure, church, that neither life nor death nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is hope for the depressed soul. Let us pray. Our gracious heavenly Father, We give you all the glory. We thank you for your word in which you have showed us the depressed soul, this man. And so, Father, we could all relate. Maybe some of us have gone through depression in our life, and we just don't know. We just didn't know about it. But, Father, it doesn't end with the depressed soul being depressed. It ends with praise. And that's because he has preached to himself the gospel, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you saved us, really, from our own sin, from the depths of the waters, from, from evilness, Lord. And you brought us into joy, to joy with you. And Lord, it may seem hard, it may seem just like a, a, a far-off thing to believe in this, but Lord, I ask you for your Holy Spirit to be upon us, to think through this. Help us, Lord, to encourage our own hearts, but also to encourage others who are going through this Be with us this week. Preach to our affections, O Lord. Stir our hearts so that we may praise you forevermore. Lord, we love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.